Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 64, Kaiju Weekly versus 20 Million Miles to Earth. Welcome to the Monster Island Film Book, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through Tokusatsu. I am your host, Monster Island's film curator, Nate Marchand. Sure, Jimmy, sure. Start the show off with the corrections. <sighs> yes, Kaiju lovers, I, I owe you, I guess, a small apology. There was a small oversight on my part. Normally, I do these tentpole episodes in chronological order. Well, unbeknownst to me, today's movie actually predates The Blob by a year. This was 1957. The Blob was 1958. Oops. Shame. Shut up, Jimmy. Anyway. Before, Shame. before we get to today's movie, I need to introduce my guests, the boys from Kaiju Weekly, my two co-hosts in common, Travis Alexander and Michael Hamilton. Who are you calling boys? We're men, damn it. <laughs> I'm a man. Says the guy wearing a helmet. Well, no, it's a hazmat suit. Like, oh, <laughs> uh, oh! I can see. Oh, okay. Hazmat suit. Why are you wearing a hazmat suit? Well, ask wait, your wait. producer because your your what producer does wearing a helmet have to do with being a boy <laughs> and not a man. <laughs> Men can't wear helmets. I thought, I thought I thought he was wearing a costume. I couldn't tell. No, I'm I thought wearing he was cosplaying or something. No, oh, yeah, I'm cosplaying as someone. <laughs> yes i'm i'm cosplaying as someone who uh was told to wear a hazmat suit for some ungodly reason jimmy why am i wearing this stupid thing oh so this is your little this is your little way of getting back at me for not for uh pretending that you weren't a real person <laughs> well can i at least take the damn thing off it's hot Nope, I'm ta- I'm exerting host privilege. You can take the dang thing off. Thank you. God. Jimmy is a real boy. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Because oh, otherwise, this is going to get really weird really fast. <laughs> and if he lies, something grows, but it is not his nose. Ooh. <laughs> oh, 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 so many jokes. So many It's his finger, jokes. Nathan. What was your mind on? <laughs> totally a finger. Yep. Totally. I bet there totally. I bet there's more I bet there's more juice in Jimmy's little finger than there is in um Nate's We're not body. going there. <laughs> I am exerting host privilege again. Silence! I kill you! You'd have to try harder than you normally do. <laughs> I don't know what I agreed to, but anyway. How did you guys get here today anyway? Apparently it involved a hazmat suit, so why did you have to wear a hazmat suit? We took the rad bug. 
Uh, first, yeah, we we took the rad bug because Jimmy let me have it because he was so kind, but I got an, uh, I got an email, uh, prior to coming to the Island that said, I must wear a hazmat suit when I came onto the Island. No idea (laughs) why, but okay. So Michael, you got a message. We rode together and you got a message saying that you have to wear a hazmat Mm -hmm. suit, but you didn't tell me about it. I mean, I figured your immune system was pretty good. So, um, but yeah, I got an email about uh, wearing we are COVID free on the island. I assure you. But I figured, you know what? I played along. I figured it was uh, Jimmy being an a hole and just wanting to get back at me anyway for not acknowledging his real personhood. <laughs> uh, so, Jimmy, I I acknowledge here on the podcast that you are indeed a real fake person. Such language, such language. Jeez, man. Is Jed here today? Because I may have to dump button you. Jeez. Oh, you've already uh, sent him the text message to be over here. Got it. Hmm. Of course, it's because of Michael. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is he going to is he going to bust through the wall like the Kool-Aid man and go, oh, yeah, I almost want him to. Except he wouldn't smash through it. He would, you know, he'd be like, punch, punch, punch. Of course. Yeah. But we're not, but we're not here to talk about Godzilla versus Megalon. Although I, I can tell you gentlemen must have slept the entire way here. Who did you take shifts driving the rad bug? Do you have to get certified to fly that thing? Autopilot, sir. Oh, of course there's an autopilot. Who put it in there? Billy or Jimmy? I'm assuming Billy because Billy is smarter than Jimmy. Oh, I'm just joshing you now, Jimbo. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> but Jimmy and Billy, I just realized that was an unintentional double dragon reference. It is. Ooh. Good for you. Good for good for you for being smart there, Marchand. Ooh. Accidentally um, smart. <laughs> the the best way or the only way you know how. Oh, 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 my ego. Mm, so much bruising. Oh, I will say that this this smoothie that uh, I had before coming over to the radio station is delicious. Oh, did you get it from uh, uh, Smoothie King Ghidorah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, that's the Smoothie King uh, franchise here. Yeah, it's, the, it's the Red Berry Smoothie, so, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, you might want to not have a second helping of that. Too late. I'm almost. I'm almost done with this really tall glass. Uh, well, then you're going to become a very sleepy drug addict. Uh, yeah. That stuff comes from Faroe Island. Have fun. Hmm. Oh, by the way, I brought my cat to the island too. I hope that was okay. Oh, Daisy! <laughs> Hello, Daisy. <laughs> she had to be here to see all uh, the kaiju and scratch mm-hmm. their legs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which one is her favorite? Uh, she likes King Caesar, and it's a point of contention between the two of us. But we've worked our mm. we've worked through it. Ah, I'm glad to hear that you've done that. Shut up, Michael. Anyway, Jimmy, hang on, Jimmy. Can I get another one, please? Th- thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. As I was saying, we've been bantering all this time, and I haven't even mentioned what the movie is yet. 
Because <laughs> today we are continuing our series called America, 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 America. America, I do. <laughs> And boy, howdy, did I have to smack that silence button <laughs> to play that with these two. They're getting rowdy. But anyway, yes, Amerikaiju is continuing. And we're talking about 20 million miles to Earth because I had to get at least one Harryhausen into this series. And I knew you two are both huge Harryhausen fans. So I had to get you on for this. In fact, I it, yes. this had to be so big. It demanded both of you. Yes, love Ray Harryhausen. Love his. We love Ray Harryhausen. We we do. We love Ray Harryhausen. Ray Harryhausen is is a is a wonderful, wonderful human being, and has taken up many a many hours of my childhood. Uh, I'd say between Ray Harryhausen and Playboy, I my childhood was pretty pretty filled up. Well, I uh, I I can't speak to playboy wow. but you know uh, you, you've heard As me mention child, that, uh, that michael <laughs> you started early <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, anyway play you know uh you know, childhood fantasies aside <laughs> you uh, you guys know that you have two friends who share a birthday with with mr harryhausen right yes right? we do well, we have yes, one friend we do. and one acquaintance jack jack and alex Jack and Alex have a birthday with Ray Harryhausen. Oh, well, um, I thought you were talking about the one who just recently graduated kindergarten. Oh, congratulations, Elijah. I'm glad that you finally made it to first grade. Oh, don't pick on that poor baby. Don't pick on oh. that poor baby. <laughs> okay, okay, fine. He just started middle school. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. He's, he's, he's. He's getting his, he's growing his man peach fuzz now. Oh, ah, yeah. 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 yeah, he's growing up. They grow up so fast. On Kaiju Weekly, we've been periodically going through the Harryhausen filmography. We we just we, mm -hmm. we've been doing it periodically, and we've been trying to go through it uh, chronologically. You know, starting with his earliest work and mm -hmm. moving forward. And it has been such a, an adventure. I mean, most of these movies I had already seen at a young age, and and you know, for most of my life. So. Yeah, I knew most of these movies, but seeing it in chronological order, it they really, really take on just a whole nother dimension. So, yeah, we are definitely mm -hmm. fans of Ray Harryhausen. Really, Jimmy? How could... Oh, are you serious? Of course he would start a competing show. Apparently, our new majority shareholder, the new boss here, is doing his own live stream while we're having a broadcast, thereby splitting our potential live audience here on the island. Oh, is it Dang. more interesting? Is it more interesting than this show? Well, let's see. Yeah, what do you, what's going go on, Jimmy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let's see. Well, what's, what's he even doing, Jimmy? It can't be that interesting. <laughs> You're kidding me. He sent one of his cyber flies out to go find the emir in the island's jungle. Well, I guess that makes sense. The Emir is pretty reclusive. He doesn't like being bothered. Well, let's uh, let's take a let's take a quick peek at that live stream. 
Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and you lovely mutants. Cameron Winter here with a special live stream. Sorry, not sorry, Marchland, for cutting into your piece of the audience pie, but as my associate Mr. Gold has told me, the morning is the best time for hunting. So be very, very quiet. I'm hunting, Ymir. <laughs> oh, me. With the 65th anniversary of 20 million miles to Earth, and the 102nd birthday of Ray Harryhausen next month, showcasing the Ymir isn't just a good idea, it's a requirement. But he's an elusive and reclusive creature. Seeing him is a badge of honor and makes anyone who sees him feel lucky enough to play the lottery. Convert the 20 million miles to dollars, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's send Cyberfly number 57 here into the Monster Island jungle to find the Space Lizard. I've been itching to try out some new features added after some uh, recent incidents. So if anyone's in the market for some big, bad robots, call me. Now. Well, that's enough of that. But that, that does make sense. Harryhausen's birthday and the 65th anniversary of this film are both next month. Did you guys know that? Released. Yes, we did. In June 1957. I as Jimmy reminded me. <laughs> I neglected to mention that the Toku topic is going to be the Soviet side of the space race. Now back to the episode. <laughs> well, there you go. But... Speaking of June 1957, we're going to learn about that and some other important facts in the entertaining info dump that Jimmy likes to write for us, even though there's no longer any contractual obligations. It's just MIFE tradition at this point. So let's get started with that. The Emir is a scared and confused reptilian alien creature brought to Earth from Venus by astronauts. He exhibits many anthropomorphisms, such as curiosity, rage, and other emotions, indicating intelligence, if not sentience. He's a gentle creature and isn't violent unless provoked. He eludes humans to survive or searches for sulfur to eat. Colonel Robert Bob Calder is the intrepid and square-jawed commander of an American spacecraft that traveled to Venus and brought the Emir to Earth to be studied to learn how he survives in the harsh environment. When the creature escapes into the countryside, he leads the group that pursues and captures him, always advising them on the Emir's behavior. His love interest, the confident and capable medical student Marissa Leonardo, accompanies Calder and his group after studying the newborn Emir with her curious and intelligent father, Dr. Leonardo. She is attracted to Calder, having nursed him back to health after he survived his ship's crash, and flirts with the man while pursuing, and later studying, the creature. Major General A.D. McIntosh is the stalwart commanding officer who leads an investigation into the rocket's crash and later oversees the pursuit of the Emir while also negotiating with the local authorities to learn the creature's whereabouts. The shrewd but naive Pepe is a Sicilian boy who discovers the Emir egg and sells it to Dr. Leonardo to buy a cowboy hat, quote-unquote, from the country of Texas. He then hides from the authorities for fear of losing the hat. For the most part, the kaiju and human plotlines are unified. While the film is at first focused on the rocket crash, it quickly shifts its focus to the Emir. 
after which the character's actions revolve around capturing, studying, or killing the creature. There are a few unconnected subplots, such as Calder wooing Marissa, but they are minor. While not normally hostile, the Emir is the problem. Dr. Leonardo locks the small newborn Emir in a cage, but the creature grows to human size overnight and breaks out. After taking refuge in a barn, the Emir is attacked by the farmer's dog, but the Emir kills the animal. Calder and his posse arrive, and he tries to drive the Emir into a cage with a stick. The farmer panics and stabs the Emir in the back with a pitchfork, enraging the creature, who attacks and nearly kills the farmer before escaping. The police attack the Emir with machine guns and flamethrowers, but the weapons are ineffective since the creature has no heart or lungs. Calder leads an operation that subdues the creature by dropping electrified nets from a helicopter onto the Emir. The creature is then taken to the Rome Zoo to be studied. The equipment shorts out, and the now huge monster awakens and breaks out. He fights and maims an elephant while rampaging through the city. He hides in the River Tiber, and soldiers toss grenades into it. The Emir emerges and destroys Point Santa Angelo. Several soldiers battle him at a temple, and he kills them. The problem is solved by military might. Calder leads a team of soldiers into the Colosseum where the creature is hiding and shoots the Emir with a bazooka. With the creature incapacitated, a tank blows out the ledge on which the Emir lays, and he falls to his death. The screenplay by Bob Williams and Christopher Knopf, based on a story by Charlotte Knight and Ray Harryhausen, is a simple and straightforward science fiction creature feature. The cast is relatively large and has minor subplots, but it remains focused on its main story and progressing the plot. Columbia considered this to be a B-picture, so special effects wizard Ray Harryhausen and director Nathan Durand were a lot of the small budget. Despite this, the filmmakers managed to travel to Italy for some location filming, thereby giving the film an authentic-looking setting. Harryhausen worked doggedly on the stop-motion effects, creating his first true iconic creature. The Emir is infused with personality and commands the audience's sympathy. He has far more in common with Mighty Joe than he does the Retosaurus in terms of characterization. He's not simply a monster. Harryhausen gave just as much attention to other details, like the believable movements of the nets. The Emir's fight with the elephant is a highlight, showcasing a master craftsman coming into his own. This is a serious film with a moderate amount of gravitas that, as previously mentioned, engenders much pathos for its creature. With its alien lizards from Venus and rockets capable of visiting other planets, it's a fantastical science fiction film. This isn't an experimental film because it has most of the typical trappings of the science fiction films and creature features of the time. Specifically, it reinforces the style of one of Harryhausen's previous films, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, with its monster on the loose story and special effects. However, it also reinforces the style of 1931's Frankenstein with its misunderstood and arguably innocent monster. While science fiction films were increasingly popular with young adult audiences, this was intended to entertain a general audience. However, Harryhausen has mentioned that it appeals greatly to children. Budget and box office figures are, surprisingly, unavailable. 
Regardless, the film did well financially thanks to its modest budget. It further solidified Harryhausen as a stop-motion special effects craftsman, and his work here paved the way for his many classic fantasy films. It was generally liked by critics at the time who praised the special effects. The film was considered a classic by science fiction fans, monster fans, and classic film buffs. It has a 6.3 with 7,200 ratings on IMDb. 20 Million Miles was intended to be filmed in color, but it was shot in black and white due to budget constraints. However, for the film's 50th anniversary in 2007, Harryhausen supervised the colorization by Legend Films. Besides the color, there are minor changes to this edition, such as it beginning in, quote, a fishing village in Sicily, end quote, the fictional Guerra, and not Sperlonga, Italy. There are several forces at play. Fear of the unknown, as seen in the human's response to the Emir, clashes with the creature's desire to survive. The Emir is a confused creature in a strange environment, which has abnormal effects on his biology. Indeed, nature itself seems to fight against the Emir as some sort of intruder, as seen with the dog and the elephant. Science seeks to study and possibly exploit the Emir, who exhibits human-like behaviors. The more, quote-unquote, sophisticated Americans clash with the bumpkinish local Sicilian authorities over how to respond to the Emir. Pepe's naive cleverness puts him at odds with the sensible adult. The capable Marissa pushes back against some mild sexism. A few themes are developed in the film. Marissa holds her own with the many men around her, showing she is a capable physician despite inexperience. Pepe's shrewdness is rewarded. Scientific advancement is valued. The civilians learn time and again to listen to experts, although often after near disasters. Human ingenuity is shown to be capable of overcoming alien creatures. While not explored, the Emir is arguably a victim of misunderstanding who is to be pitied by an audience asking itself, could the creature have been saved? Now that we're on the same page, let's have some Toku Talk on this Harryhausen classic. Alrighty, gentlemen, as the guests and resident Harryhausen superfans in the room, what are your opening thoughts on 20 Million Miles to Earth? G go ahead, Travis. I'll let you start. Um, This... This creature, the the Ymir or Emir or however you want to pronounce it, Emir. I've heard it's been. I've seen it pronounced and heard it pronounced several different ways. I think Harryhausen himself said uh, pronounced it more like Emir, or yeah, oh, okay. I, or Emir. I think it's closer to that. It's actually he actually, for what I found out, they actually never called it that in the movie because there's another word. It's spelled differently, but it's pronounced the same way. It's spelled with an E and not a Y, and it's the name for a potentate in the Middle East, which is why they never use the name. But it comes from Norse mythology. Uh, the creature from this film, the Ymir, is one of my favorites from Harryhausen's whole filmography. I really enjoy this. This, to me, at least in, you know, from in my opinion, is when Harryhausen starts putting in more mm -hmm. personality into his creatures. 
Um, because prior mm-hmm. to this, you had you had the giant octopus from from uh, it came from. Uh, you, you mean the sextopus? Yeah, yeah, the sextopus. Um, and and uh, whoa, <laughs> don't go there, Jimmy. It's Latin. Learn it anyway. Uh, and and you you had the the um what was it the the redosaurus so so you had some beast from 20,000 fathoms right so you had these creatures but this is the point where i i feel like he started including more personality and watching this mm-hmm. movie like i had it hasn't been that long since i watched uh the original king kong from 33 again uh, i watched mm-hmm. it not too long ago and i actually have more sympathy for the Ymir in this movie than I did for Kong in, in that one. Mm. And, and, and it's, it's just, for me, I think that Harryhausen just really excelled at putting the personality into his creatures. And this is kind of where it all begins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard in some of my research, there are some people who called this Harryhausen's King Kong. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So Michael, how about you? Um, so, you know, we've talked about, Travis and I've talked about on Kaiju Weekly, the reason why we've, we've chosen to go in sort of filmography order with the Harryhausen films was because it has been such a pleasure to see his work progress from, uh, Beast all the way up to, even all the way up to, uh, 20 million miles, 20 million miles to Earth. Because if I'm not mistaken, correct me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Travis, this is when Harryhausen begins to perfect the art of like superimposing real humans in with his, uh, stop motion statues, correct? Because the, um, his, his, his imposing of human characters, like live human actors, in with the maquettes is really gorgeous in this film. Yeah, he well, he's he's always done that, and he's always managed to do that from from Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms through you know to, through to this film. But this every movie he he pushes the boundaries on how much the humans interact like the live action actors interact with the stop motion and you know up Mm. until now they've kind of been in the same shot but not really interacted with each other Mm. on the same plane and this Mm. is the first movie where you get that one-to-one interaction between live action actors and a stop motion uh figure and it it it's a little it's a little kind of touchy in this film you know it's not it's not completely polished but by his next film and i think it's his next film in in the in order of his filmography which is uh the seventh voyage of sinbad he has completely perfected it because then you get the skeletons the skeleton interacting with your live action actors. And so, you know, Mm. he moves forward with it, but this is, yeah, this is where he really first starts experimenting with, uh, how far he can go with, with actors, live action actors interacting with that stop motion figure. Yeah. And vice versa. It's like in the, the stop motion interacting with the environment, because one of the things you, if you notice, uh, when you watch beast from 20,000 fathoms, how, the the redosaurus really doesn't like interact with its environment a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas 
in in 20 million miles to earth you have that scene where well you have the you have the scene where the uh, ymir emir i'm i'm going to probably go back and forth yes. but you have um you have the emir uh, interacting with the dog in the barn and interacting mm-hmm. with the farmer. Uh, and I've noticed, and I noticed too, when I was doing my rewatch of this movie, that Harryhausen's animation of actual like, human claymation characters has gotten a lot better in this as well. Uh, they're a little less herky jerky and they're a little bit more, uh, I guess real, they're a little bit more realistic. I've noticed too. Um, I personally, I actually almost prefer to watch as much as I love the recolored version because of its, its vibrant color palette. I almost prefer to watch this particular movie in its, in its original black and white, because I think it does hide a little bit more of its imperfections and you're able to kind of immerse yourself into this world a little more. Well, that's Mm -hmm. interesting. And Jimmy brought this to light in his entertaining info dump, but because when we watched it today, I was actually switching between the black and white and the color because the first time I saw this, I think like most people, it was in black and white. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I'm a little, I, you know, I'm a little averse to colorizing black and white films. Call me weird, but you know, a lot of people feel that way, but you're weird. Yeah. Of course you would do that. Anyway. Nope, Jimmy, don't agree with him. So, but I I decided to give this one a try. So I was flipping back and forth and it actually looked a lot better than I thought it did. And that's in large part because Legend Films, who colorized this, they had a whole new method of colorizing this thing. They actually used a computer algorithm to do it. They would literally program in what the colors of all like the clothing and the creatures and the characters and everything would program it in there. And then they would use an algorithm to have the computer basically move the color palette on the screen as whatever is on the screen is moving. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's uncanny what they did. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. And I'm like, this is beyond my pay grade. I don't know how you make something like this work, but they, they figured out how to do it. And they had Harry Housen supervised. I think this was in 2007 for the 50th anniversary of the film. And they did that because Harry Housen said that he did want to film this in color Mm -hmm. back in the day. The fun fact, the same technology that was developed for that recoloring is the same technology uh, that's used in a lot of uh, applications where you now have a, if you're familiar with Photoshop and you have a color picker, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's the same, it's it's a similar technology as that. So this was kind of the precursor to that technology and that computer was, you know, a, a, sort of a precursor to like mm-hmm. what the, the technology that we sort of take for granted uh today but that's really fascinating um and i did notice because from the you compare 20 million miles to earth from or to something like it came from beneath the sea and it is a night and i feel like it's a night and day difference i can't i'm not gonna speak for travis but the recolorization to in uh it came from beneath the sea doesn't look great you i almost oh, no. well i actually do i actually prefer to watch that one in black and white as well because mm-hmm. it just the i mean it's vibrant and it's colorful but everything looks either green or pink so mm-hmm. yeah uh, <laughs> yeah the 20 million miles was was one of the three i think it was columbia mm-hmm. films that Harryhausen did and they colorized all of them all three of them so that and earth versus the flying saucers and mm-hmm. The, and this 
If you have See, the 50th anniversary sets of these DVDs and Blu-rays, then you have the recolored version. Yeah, yeah, that's what I got for the film vault here, and that's what the, what we watched today. And you See, can. What's fun me, is that you can sw- you can switch between them on the fly. Oh wow, that's neat! I didn't know that. Uh, for me, I always watch movies the original in in the original black and white. I rarely will ever watch a recolored. Uh, film unless it's like that's the only version that's available so yeah the 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 times i have watched recolored films um when i watched the colored version of 20 million miles or no no not 20 this one's 20 million miles this one was uh, this one was good but um but it came from beneath the sea it was just awful absolutely awful so Mm -hmm. yeah i i Mm -hmm. i just i always prefer i mean i like black and white films in general so i i i like watching the black and white versions Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you were, you guys were talking about the next movie and comparing Harryhausen's work in this to those next movies. But he actually did say that the Emir animating that helped him prepare for the Cyclops. Yeah, and you can definitely mm-hmm. see it. You can see it that that this was mm-hmm. the precursor to the Cyclops because there's a lot of similarities in the movements <laughs> and the body type that you that you mm-hmm. get in this. Well, that's also because he cannibalized some of the armature. True. The Cyclops. True. Right. He cannibalized, like he even cannibalized like the head, the, ar- the head sculpture as well. Because mm-hmm. if you, if you look really close at, if you look really close at the Cy- Cyclops and the Emir uh, side by side, you can tell those, you can really pinpoint those similarities that he did. Like uh, obviously the, the Emir has a beak. And the uh, Cyclops has a more traditional human looking mouth, but like, uh, and then one eye, but you can obviously tell like some of those, you could tell where he borrowed some of those uh, features or he can tell, Mm -hmm. we can tell where he borrowed that arm part parts of that armature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, those, those armatures were not cheap. So no, they weren't. No. Yeah. He had to do what he, I mean, we made the joke earlier about it, but, but it is true. The, the, the octopus quote unquote octopus or sextopus uh, from, it came from beneath the sea. It it only had six legs instead of eight because it was expensive to do. And Mm -hmm. he decided to just cut two legs off uh, or, you know, not make them uh, to save money. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And you know, it's uh, you know, another like one of the I think one of the most famous um one of the most famous uh repurposing of an armature was Willis O'Brien with uh King Kong to make to go to go from King Kong to Kinko. Um you get, and if anyone who doesn't know what Kinko is, it's Son of Kong. That is the name mm-hmm. given to the white gorilla and Son of Kong. Yeah, so did, they, or, or did you say Kiko? Oh, I or, said King. I'm sorry. Or, or did you say Kinko? I know, said where people used to go get stuff printed. I, no, no. Little... I said Kinko. I'm sorry. I said Kinko. <laughs> that is the Kinko's name of my show. Like, Kinko's. Yeah, yeah. Kinko shame. <laughs> that is the. <laughs> oh boy, that's a good one. That's it's almost better than sexy puss. Um, but <laughs> I'm with Jimmy on that one. You deserved it. <laughs> uh, no, I. It, it is. It is Kiko. I'm sorry. I, I misspoke. Kinko is the name of my girlfriend's cat. <laughs> and the print shop. <laughs> and the print shop. And definitely not the sexy puss. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Uh, but you can also see the the emir in the Kraken. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. The Kraken is like, I think, the most 
obvious or blatant. For those who don't know, the Kraken from the original Clash of the Titans. Right. But that wasn't him cannibalizing. That was just him reusing. No, that was just a very similar design. Yeah. Right. But he also... He also said he went through a lot of different designs for the Emir. <laughs> yes. There were different points where it's gonna it was gonna have horns, it was gonna have one eye, it was going mm-hmm. to be fatter. It was he went through a lot of different sketches for this. Li- thing. Originally, the Emir was supposed to look more set, look closer to a Cyclops, or look closer to the Cyclops we got from Seventh Voyage. Yeah. 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 And yeah. if you if you pick up that that book, um, the art of Ray Harryhausen, I think is what it's called or mm-hmm. whatever that which I'm that still book trying is. to get into the film vault yeah. or the, the library, I should say it. Um, it came out just a, just like what, last year or year before. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like a couple years ago. I have that particular book. I should have brought it with me. Dag on it. Yeah, yeah you but you can have. you can see the like some of the concept art that he did for the Ymir and it yeah you're right it looks exactly like the Cyclops so you can see where he just kind of like okay this concept worked we didn't use it but it still looked good so I'm gonna take and adapt it for the next film and uh, and yeah and and so that's that's just those are just some of the things that you get when you're watching these films in in ray harryhausen's filmography in order because growing up and watching them you know i just watched whatever which one came on tv so sometimes i watched the mysterious island sometimes i watched clash of the titans you know it just whatever was on but seeing them in the order that they that he made them you really get to pick up on just how much he evolves as a creator but also how much he reuses and and adapts his designs you know for for other films further down the line Mm -hmm. i'm just a little disappointed that you guys didn't start your harryhausen series with his actual first movie anyway so travis you brought up something that i do think we need to talk about which is you said that this was a very sympathetic monster and my goodness is it Sure, Jimmy. Tell us all about your experience with the Emir. Jimmy, 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 oh. Jimmy, Jimmy. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Uh, what? Nobody cares that when he was on Venus during the war in space, he saw a whole pack of those no. things I, in I their native he, habitat. I think he's making it on up. Venus? I think he's making it up. I, I don't care what you say, Jimmy. You can give. You can threaten me all you want to, sir. Uh, laser pistols aren't allowed in the recording studio, so meh. Well, you know what they say. <laughs> Never stopped him, let me tell you. Jimmy's are from Mars. Ymir's are from Venus. Don't humor him <laughs> anyway. So, <laughs> so sympathetic. That is, to say the Ymir is sympathetic is an understatement. I just, if only people had just left the poor thing alone. Yeah. Yeah. And and what was the moment? Stu- what do you think was the moment Stupid. where they 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 crossed the line and there was just like there's no oh, going no, back. It was, it was, it was stupid off. Pepe. It was when it was Pepe. It's Pepe's fault. Pepe. Now, Pepe, you're gonna blame you're gonna blame it on the Kenny. You're gonna blame it I'm, on the most Italian uh, Italian whoever it Italianed. Yes. Pepe, Pepe, you should have left the monster alone. You're what are you thinking? Right. Well, you're not thinking right. What are you thinking, the Pepe? <laughs> you dummy! You dumb ass. 
Come on. Let's go. Where's Jet? Where's Jet? Oh, there he is. Sure. Yep. Good thing you sent him that text message, Jimmy. Anyway, yeah. So you blame Pepe? I blame Pepe, yes. Now, what did what did Pepe do? What, at what point did Pepe force the the emir to cross the line? He opened the jar. Oh, if, to find the space yeah, turd? Yeah, the space turd, yeah. The glowing <laughs> space turd, yes. The glowing... Like the, actually, it doesn't... It doesn't look like it actually. It, no, to be fair, it doesn't look like a space turd. It looks like a big space enema, like a big old. It, look, it looks like one of those big, like uh, petroleum jelly enemas that you use when you when you're a little constipated. Okay. Uh, you say that. You say it's Pepe's fault. I think it was when he got the pitchfork in the back. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I definitely yeah, think the yeah. barn scene is the turning point, really, yeah. for the Ymir. But I will say this, though. The Ymir, even after, even after the barn scene, even after he's captured, he always attacks out of defense. He never attacks out of maliciousness. And even when he attacks the elephant later on in the film... The elephant is still breathing when he leaves. Like he he doesn't kill the mm-hmm. elephant. So the the Ymir is not trying to hurt anyone. It is just protecting itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, it, it is very much like King Kong, where it's been brought into a completely alien environment and it doesn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as we know, the da- the poor thing's a newborn. Mm-hmm. So that's already weird. And then you, it's in a, what is technically an unnatural environment and its body is responding in an unnatural fashion to the, un, uh, to the foreign environment. That's why the thing keeps getting bigger. They said it, it's, it's our, it's the earth atmosphere reacting to its metabolism or something because science you know, mumbo jumbo. To, sure. Yeah. yeah. Pseudoscience. We all love the pseudoscience, especially here on monster Island. You know, it's as good an explanation. as Exactly. Any. Exactly. Of course, Jimmy, they're not that big on Venus. You know, and I will say, I do wish that they had that the script had leaned a little bit more into that angle. People saying, you know, if we just left the thing alone. Yeah, it was it was really kind of surprising. You didn't get a ton. You didn't get a whole lot of the. uh, But we have to protect the animal, you know, those people, you know, we didn't see a whole lot of that. That wasn't very common in um, 1950s monster movies in America. Yeah. The Beast of 20,000 Fathoms is one of the rare exceptions where that's Mm. brought up. But I would have thought that if any movie, if if any movie at all needed to have that kind of character, it was this one, because if we're supposed to, if we're supposed to empathize with the, the Emir it would make sense to have that kind of character in this movie, at least as a counter, as a counterpoint to our uh, very stoic, traditional American military person and pretty nurse. This highlights one of the biggest flaws and and drawbacks to Mm the early Harryhausen films and, and, and a lot of Harryhausen. I won't even say the early ones, but a lot of Harryhausen films is that mm-hmm. his intent in the way he creates the characters and uh, in the, in the creatures 
is mm-hmm. not always done and, and given justice by the directors because he is mm-hmm. not a director. And and usually, right. as, even though he has a lot of input, especially later on in his filmography, he has a lot more input on how the films are mm-hmm. made. As, uh-huh. In these early ones, he is kind of he's kind of a slave to the to the whims of the directors and the producers, and he puts as much sympathy and everything as he can into the creature but that doesn't mean the director is going to film the rest of it that way well be nice to the director of this one he's a fellow nathan nathan Jaran and the you know, harry house he called him me, jerry that makes me trust him even less <laughs> but this was one of three <laughs> movies that he did with harry Housen. right the yeah. other one's being yeah. seventh voyage of sinbad and first men on the moon yeah and yeah. mr Jaran. Won an Oscar for How Green Was My Valley. But after after this film, and uh, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's after this film that Harryhausen starts becoming more, you could say controlling, but really he just has a lot more input in the the scenes that are being shot in the in the way the films are shot and the way the actors are Mm -hmm. are being done he becomes a lot more like an assistant director in the future Mm -hmm. films but up to this point he's not doing that he he Mm -hmm. is basically just subject to the whims of the directors and and all of these original harryhausen films these early ones these black and white era ones the 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 Harryhausen effects and the creature designs and the characters that he creates are outstanding, but the failings of the film all come from everything outside of that. Usually, the acting, the script, the directing. I saw a lot of stuff that talked about how they uh, they felt like the Harryhausen films, particularly the early ones, had the genius that was Harryhausen, but and then everything else couldn't quite live up to it. He said that way. So yeah, Willis O'Brien only ever got to, you know, make a couple of movies to his name. One of them was King Kong. And they said like, the thing about King Kong is that everything's firing on all cylinders. And Harryhausen didn't have the advantage where it was, cause he was basically making B movies for a while. Mm-hmm. And the, and these critics opinions, these scholars opinions, the, scripts and the acting were not on par with the special effects mm, and they right, thought harry yeah. deserved better so looking forward to his future films after this from a movie standpoint just from the quality of the movies themselves you can definitely say that everything after this point in time is better than what he's done up to this point um or at least you know the the films themselves now you can you can argue favorites on creatures and special effects that he does like the ymir is one of my favorites but i think you know objectively the quality of the complete films the everything after this point starts to improve Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, the Emir was one of Harryhausen's personal favorites. Yeah, and I, I think I think you get that coming through in the character and how he portrayed it. Uh, that you can mm-hmm. tell there was a lot of care and a lot of love put into this into this creature. Mm-hmm. This was one of the first creatures he did. He wanted it to be bipedal and have a human shape because he thought he could get more expression out of it, which is true compared to a quadruped. And this was also the first time we had that kind of trademark Harryhausen pose with the 
you know, the always, they almost always slightly bent elbows and, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> some, I read one guy who thought that that made uh, the, the Emir look too unnatural and stiff, but I'm like, it's a little more interesting to look at for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as a sure. default pose, you know, T pose for dominance. You know? <laughs> Come at me, bro. <laughs> Uh, but if we want to talk about some negatives for this movie one negative i have is this movie we're told about an adventure that happened before this movie even began and it's the way they describe it it's like oh i actually would kind of be interested to have seen some of that stuff i understand budget wise and time wise why they didn't do it but but it's like yeah there's a whole other movie that is a prequel to this uh, this movie <laughs> yeah i mean like when they quote unquote quite by accident discovered that the emir is weak to electricity how do you accidentally electrocute something <laughs> I, I someone mean, please explain that to me <laughs> I mean, you have a few, you have a few drinks, you have a few drinks, you get a little crazy, you get a little too close to the power lines. It happens, man. It happens. Don't judge. I mean, I'm sure there are like thousands of people who are accidentally electrocuted every year (laughs) for different reasons. So are you saying that, uh, that Colonel Calder had some space whiskey with him, had a little too much and then it's like, yeah, this is a good idea. I like executing the little Venusia critters. They just had yes, a bug zapper exact, on board. <laughs> it's exactly what I'm. It's exactly what I'm saying. They okay. So I have a question. Oh, since since when do they start building spaceships out of concrete? <laughs> <laughs> Why do you? Oh, uh, because the interior of the ship does it looks, looks very industrial. <laughs> looks suspiciously like the basement of an apartment building. <laughs> That was a recycled set. Yeah, just just pointing that out. Yeah, but like I said, it was a recycled set. I'm actually trying to see where uh, where did they get that? Oh, it's the it was reused from a movie called The Kane Mutiny, which starred Humphrey right. Bogart. Yeah, that was how little they didn't have. This didn't have a giant budget. They were <laughs> they were reusing a lot of things. No, but 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 thankful, you know what they what they were able to accomplish on the budget they have. It, it is really astounding. I'm guessing most they, of it went toward flying to italy (laughs) yeah which was one of harryhausen's impetuses for making this movie because he wanted a vacation in italy yeah he always wanted to go to italy and so he used this opportunity to take a trip to Mm -hmm. italy because (laughs) the earlier drafts of the of his uh, not the script but the the story treatment uh, the rocket was going to land in in my backyard, uh, Lake Michigan. <laughs> well, my, my Lake Michigan. You know, I grew up right next yeah. to Lake Michigan, so yeah. You know, but then he moved it to Italy so he could get the vacation. Yeah, uh, the final action scene was going to take place in Chicago, actually, uh-huh. in the original treatments. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then it was moved to Rome, and then it ends at the Colosseum naturally. Yeah, the the climax of the, the the climax of the film was supposed to, and I'm not I'm not fooling, uh, but it was supposed to be the the Emir uh, climbing the Sears Tower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have been even more King Kong like. 
Yeah, I was just yeah, that's I was going to add that, you know, that just lends the lends to the fact that this is Ray Harryhausen's King Kong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yep. it's it's amusing to think about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, another fun fact about this movie, this is the last movie that Ray Harryhausen does that is set in the present because mm. every other movie after yeah. this is set either in the distant future or in the distant past. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Sword. He, this is after, or the, I'm sorry, this is before he embraced his, um, he fully embraced his sword and sandal period. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. fantasy period. The fantasy yeah. epics. Yeah. The fantasy epics, mm-hmm. which I think are some of his best works. Some of the, mm-hmm. the fantasy epics. Well, yeah. yeah. And that's what that goes into what I was saying, like the quality of his, of the films improve after this point. And, and I, I, I am one of the people who thinks it's because Ray Harryhausen had more control. Now I have heard from some of the actors, you know, in, in like, uh, well, in documentaries and stuff that they didn't necessarily appreciate how controlling he became, uh, after this point, but the quality definitely improved because of it. Well, he actually did direct some of the scenes in this. He directed Mm -hmm. the Italy scenes. Right. Partly yeah. because there was going to be a lot of special effects in them. Mm-hmm. Right. I will say, I will say the, uh, the script in this, it's serviceable. If you're familiar with fifties sci-fi and monster movies, it's pretty standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, it's nothing like, like I don't find the, I honestly don't find the human characters all that compelling in this. I don't know. I don't know. We got the feisty nurse. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, but we, we one of her it. first lines is, I'm not a nurse, I'm a doctor, or almost a doctor. <laughs> I mean, yeah, with the, there's that, there's her, she's she's great, but I just don't think that there's the, the cast is not what you the, the human cast, I should say. Well, and it's, this you is, don't like this Pepe, who thinks Texas is a country, <laughs> yeah, the country of Texas. Um, I want the where I want the order I had, like and be like at the cowboy. Uh, are you telling um, me true fact? I, I would be like, kid, that's redundant. <laughs> the the cheesy fact. acting and the hammy dialogue, it just, it just so so ridiculous in this film. Uh, about as ridiculous as Sicilian cops having flamethrowers. When were flamethrowers standard issue for police officers? Well, I don't know what kind of crime happens in Italy, so who knows? <laughs> that requires flamethrowers? Rats. Rats. <laughs> Big rats. Lots of rats. Big rats. Big, this, Big rats. Nezera. Is... Nezera was here first. This was the precursor to Rats Night of Terror, which was an an Italian horror film. This is true. That's what happened. So see, that's they needed the flamethrowers for mm-hmm. for that. I've I think we but, figured it know, out finally. I would go so far as saying even the music in this one is oh, kind uh, of there's an entire special feature on the Blu-ray about the soundtrack. Really? I Yes, I learned some very interesting things. Huh. I, Let me find that I for found you. the music in this one very lackluster. I think that again You say I that think the music in we his epics in the future 
uh, are better. This one, I just was kind of like, it was very generic. <laughs> it was pretty, it was pretty middling. I have to agree. Uh, well, uh, maybe, but take a look at this. <laughs> this is the name of the composer. Just try to pronounce that. Mishka Bakalenkov. Baklenikov. 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 Yeah. Baklenikov. Baklenikov. Yep. Yeah. Misha Baklenikov. Yes. yes. This was the guy who was uh, hired, who was usually hired by Columbia to do their B mu- uh, to do their B movies, and they usually just use stock music for the B movies. And Baklenikov hired himself to do this, and he would use a lot of the music from from past movies, but he would kind of tweak it a little bit. Or he would completely reuse it, but he did write some original pieces for this. But like, and he also put in some interesting little touches. Like the bigger the emir gets, the more the or the more instruments in the orchestra will play the emir's theme. Hmm, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But he was also very good at getting stuff done quickly. And here's the thing: this movie has 95 music cues. 49 of which were written by Baklanikov, and most movies at this time only had 25 music cues. But you should see <laughs> the things that he was borrowing from to do this. <laughs> yeah, there's just something. Oh my that, gosh. It, it really felt very lackluster to me. I, I guess because I'm so used to the epic kind of uh the fantasy films that harry housen does you know mm-hmm. later on in his filmography and the the absolutely just mind-blowingly great scores that they have for those films because my goodness mm-hmm. especially sinbad and mm-hmm. and uh clash of the titans those have fantastic scores mm-hmm. uh, his score go- his scoring was pretty simple he it's he was usually four note chords so i was i would go as far as to say that even you know 100 million years bc uh has a better score than this you like that for two other reasons no it's not because of the boobs nathan come on (laughs) give me the i like it for raquel the boobs oh my goodness (laughs) no not just boobs i just raquel welch is such a fantastic fantastically beautiful woman but she's also a decent actress you don't really get that in that film but in other films there's like maybe two paragraphs of dialogue yeah probably but no uh (laughs) just to give you just to let you know where this guy was pulling this music he got some from it came from beneath the sea and earth versus the flying saucers and that theme that music which we he used as the theme for this movie was used in a three stooges movie where they went to outer space okie dokie he also got a, a, this was a popular piece. It was called Trial and Escape. It's six minutes long, and it was from a spy movie called Talk of the Town. He also used a piece of music for the rocket crash that was actually from a drama, and it was a scene that involved a drunk. It's called Pa Warns Rudolph. Okay. So I guess they decided, well, That's it's a, a crashing st- rocket. It's kind of like a drunk. I was going to say is uh, Pa Warns Rudolph. That's the sequel song to uh, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. <laughs> You're awful. <laughs> uh, you are awful. Do you, uh, you guys have anything else to say before uh, we move on to the Toku topic? I want to go home. Actually, 
<laughs> Hold, calm down, Travis. <laughs> random, th- random fact: Rick Baker, when he was a kid, his mother, when he watched his movie, his mother told him that they made the emir by shaving a squirrel. <laughs> okay. Hmm. There's a joke there, but I'm going <laughs> to refrain from using it. Okay. Moving on. Uh, Togu topic. Yes. You know, I'm the kaiju guy now, thanks to the Monster Island Film Fault. But before that, I was the superhero guy. I wonder if there's a way I could combine those. Hey, Nathan. Uh, Travis from Kaiju Weekly. Yeah, I'm here because I need a co-host for a new Toku Heroes podcast. Oh, what's it called? Him. Shim. Standing by. Complete. That's right, heroes. We are the Henshin Men, a tokusatsu superheroes appreciation podcast. Join us as we watch several episodes of a TV series from the wide world of Henshin heroes and discuss their merits and cultural significance. Starting with one of my all-time favorites, the original Kamen Rider from 1971. We'll give out awards for things like the best action scenes and crazy what the Henshin moments. So hear us every Monday in your favorite podcatcher to get your weekly rider kicks. Gotta go, because we only have a minute to henshin it. Kenny, I'm starting a podcast. Recruit me and co-host with Attitude. Uh, What the heck? I thought we put that teleporter in storage. Michael? Next time you want me on Kaiju Weekly, tell Jimmy to... Drop the act, Nathan. This is not the Monster Island Film Vault. Okay, fine. But what's going on? I'm having you join me on The Power Trip, a journey through the Power Rangers franchise. It's a podcast version of the article series I'm writing for Kaiju Ramen Magazine. Oh, interesting. We'll spend a year analyzing the Power Rangers franchise, dedicating an episode to each season and movie. Ah, I see. So we'll be doing an overview and talking about them in broad strokes. Exactly. We'll discuss Ranger teams, the villains, the theme songs, and so much more. Can we give out fun awards for stuff like the best fight scene and the craziest moments like I do on Henshin Men? You bet. More phenomenal. When do we start? We drop episodes every two weeks starting Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. You know what that means, Michael. It's Morphin' Time. All right. And now it's time for uh, to move on to the Toku topic. Oh, great. Apparently something interesting is happening on uh, Mr. Winter's live stream. What is it this time? You see, I told Hammond for years he couldn't rely on cloned dinosaurs to keep his customers' attention. He needed to spice things up if he ever reopened the park. People get bored so easily these days. I mean, why do you think I switch between robotics, genetics, and cybernetics at the drop of Mr. Gold Stetson? Uh, Oh, is that our Venusian giant behind that big tree? Eh, nope. Anyway, to keep your audience's interest, you have to give them something new and exciting. Strange, you might say. Hence, 
where our humble little island comes in. Kaiju. It's in the name. Well, the Japanese, that is. Strange beast. Oh, is that our boy? Ah, it's just that big turtle Oscar. He captured him in Indiana. Dime store Gamera, I call him. But as I was saying, the competition never tried this until after Hammond died. And what did they do? The Indominus. What a joke. The Ymir can take that roided up Rex. Oh, did I ever tell you about the time I genetically engineered a giant chameleon? <laughs> All right. You know what? Enough with his live stream. Let's get to the Toku topic. So as I mentioned before, it's going to be on the Soviet side of the space race because, interestingly, this movie came out just a few short months before Sputnik launched. And obviously it starts with a rocket crashing, so there was definitely a lot of interest in space at that time. But everything changed once Sputnik was launched. And apparently my co-hosts are taking naps. <laughs> well, I mean, No, I'm, okay. just li- I'm just listening. I don't have anything yeah, to add uh, to that. What, I'm just, what do you want us but to if say? You learn- I mean... <laughs> well, we, we, can talk about, we can talk about Sputnik, or we can talk about... You know, we can talk about potatoes. Uh, potatoes. You know, Rus- what? Russian potatoes. Okay. Okay. But if you want to learn more about, about... Laika the dog. We're going to get to Laika, mm-hmm. actually. But... I like a Laika. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> yeah. Laika is also the name of a stop-motion animation studio. See Connections! It's also the name of a camera. Yes. I like a lot of Laika. Yeah. Anyway, so... Come on, I'm on a Laika. Like a, like a, like a, come on, I want to like a, like a, like a, like a. So if you want to learn more about the space, uh, the other side of the space race, go listen to MIFV episode 15, which was on battle in outer space with my friend, Luke Giaconetti from earth destruction directive. Anyway, who is, who is a scholar and a gentleman. Indeed. So both the United States and the Soviet union started satellite development shortly after world war two, as you would expect. And according to Russian space expert Antonoli Zak, that is actually his name, <laughs> the satellite projects took place in the backdrop of the Cold War from the 1940s to the 1980s. And obviously, <laughs> with the strained relationships between the United States and the Soviet Union, yeah, this ended up becoming a very big deal. <laughs> and, you know, even NATO was on high alert because of this, in large part because they knew that the technology developed from this could be used for other things. They did this, interestingly, I'm sure you guys have heard about this, both the Americans and the Soviets scooped up some German scientists to help them with this. Yes, Project Paperclip. Yes. Mm-hmm. 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 The United, the one that the United States most famously snagged up was Werner von Braun who was the chief architect of the Saturn V rocket that sent the Apollo mm-hmm. astronauts to the moon between 1968 and 1972. Yep. And the Soviets got an edge because they snagged some German V2 rocket tech. So the United States started to, started developing some satellites around 1945 with the Navy's Bureau of Aeronautics. That sounds very official. Of course, you would know all about it, Jimmy. You're just you know a, a kid in the candy store with today's Toku topic because space. 
So the United States was working on a satellite design to quote unquote send off scientific hardware. And then a year later, the Rand Corporation under with a under commission from the Air Force started working on a quote unquote world circling spaceship that Wait, would the Rand Corporation? Yes. My comic no. book nerd ears are are perking up. Oh. <laughs> Care to share that with the kaiju lovers? Well, Rand. Rand is uh is uh, uh Iron Fist. Yes. Mhm. Danny Rand. Mhm. Mhm. And, and he, and he unfortunately the, he made the worst of the Netflix shows according to most people. Well, he he also has he also has the Rand Corporation, and, you know, that's mm-hmm. his, you know, cuz he is a, a billionaire. Mhm. Did he make a world circling spaceship? He might have. I Probably don't know. He did. It's a it's a comic book. He, he he punched a dragon in the heart. Yes. But they were hoping this Rand Corporation was hoping to make a a satellite that could circle the world. As early as 1951, but the U.S. administration had, didn't have much enthusiasm about it because they were, quote, resting on the laurels of the perceived Air Force and nuclear supremacy in the Cold War with the USSR, end quote. That changed pretty quickly a few years later, as we'll see. Meanwhile, the Soviet's rocket program continued into the 1950s and got little attention under and i hope i say this guy's name right mikhail tik horanov he developed the i think it's the n24 it's n i i or is it n i i i'm not sure rockets along with the famous rocket designer who just got out of a gulag is tell me if you recognize this name travis you seem like the type that would know this sergey korolev 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 yes just got is out of a gulag Korolev, I, that's what I have. That's how I have it down. Korolev. Okay. K O R O L E V. Yeah, Korolev. Yeah, that's right. I do remember. Korolev. I recognize this name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was inspired by the work of a guy from the 30s. He's Russian names are are nutty. Konstantin Solyovsky. Konstantin. Konstantin. Yeah, it probably is a Konstantin. I just how you say Konstantin in Russian. Yes. The pioneer of uh, he uh, of calculating rocket fuel. After Stalin died, the program received great support from his successor Nikita Khrushchev, who wanted Khrushchev. to use Khrushchev, yes. Who wanted to use Khrushchev. Yes. Who wanted to use rocket power to assert superiority over the United States. Yep. Yep. The Soviet Academy of Sciences and several Soviet ministers approved a satellite program in 1954. And then in the United States, President Dwight Eisenhower approved a satellite program in 1955. And they planned on launching a satellite into orbit with the IGY, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And the IGY lasted from July 1st, 1957 to December 31st, 1958. The Sputnik program, that's that's the big one, was Mm -hmm. approved in... Well, it was approved January 30th, 1956, uh, receiving personal approval by Khrushchev a few weeks later. And then they kept wor- refining their technology with the R-7 rocket. And then on October 4th, 1957, Sputnik got launched. Yep. That Which was the, just... the moment everything changed. <laughs> Suddenly yes. the Americans were taking this a heck of a lot more seriously. 
Right. Because like you said, How- at the point, at this point in time, the Americans just, uh, you know, were resting on their laurels. You know, we've, mm-hmm. we've proven that our technology is more superior uh, in the wars, and we can just kind of assume that the Soviets will never be able to reach us. And then all of a sudden, the Soviets surpassed us. Yep. Yep. Uh, President Eisenhower responded five days later. He waited a while with a uh, with a press conference. And one of the source I looked at described it as casual indifference. I mean, I guess you could be that way. I mean, Sputnik was just, you know, about the size of a beach ball and, you know, but it shook the American sense of post-war technological superiority. Yep. But, you know, Sputnik, weirdly enough, as big of a deal as it was, it didn't last very long. In outer space, it wasn't a very good nope. satellite. Now that's Sputnik One. Mm-hmm. Sputnik One. There were then there was there was a Sputnik Two, which I did find some stuff about Sputnik Two in my research. Well, there's a Sputnik Three as well, too. Oh, really? What did they do with Sputnik Three? I didn't see a Sputnik Three. So Sputnik Three was a Soviet satellite that was launched in 1958. Mm-hmm. Uh, it the scientific satellite carried a large array of instruments for geophysical research, and uh, it was the um, it was the Soviet counterpart to the American, the American uh, satellite of Vanguard One. Mm, yes, I saw some stuff about Vanguard One. By the way, the name of the Russian space program is Roscosmos. 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 And it is. I do not like it better than Space Force. Yeah. I like Space Force better. Yes, yes. And it is only one of three space programs with launch capabilities. The other ones being the European Space Agency and, of course, NASA. Don't you have a cousin or something who works at NASADA? You don't like to talk about it? Of course you don't. Anyway, despite a lack of funding, uh, time pressure, and the inability to test hardware, Korolev was determined to launch a payload to the moon. So that's when things really started ramping up. So on January 2nd, 1959, the Luna 1 mission launched to the moon, but it flew past the moon instead of impacting it, but which was the intent. So they needed to make sure that they could actually get there first. It it missed by 6,000 kilometers. And then on September 14th, 1959, Luna 2 succeeded, and it became the first human-made object to arrive on the moon. Missed it by that much. Yep. And then a month later, you had Luna 3, which took the first photograph of the moon's far side. You'll start You'll start to notice a pattern here. The Russians get a lot of firsts <laughs> in the space yes. race. Yeah, they do. You know, because, you know, we, we underestimated their capabilities. That is for sure. That is for sure. And then one of the authors I looked at, Argued that the space race. This is funny. We we think we like we tend as Americans to think of the space race as being this very contentious thing as part of the Cold War, but one of the authors I looked at argued that it actually, weirdly enough, fostered cordiality between the U.S. and the Soviets in the '60s. Yeah, it was pretty anticlimactic. Yeah, President Kennedy congratulated Khrushchev when the Soviet Union launched a probe to Venus. Yes, I know it triggers you, Jimmy, but whatever. And that was on February 13th, 1961. So despite tensions and competition, both governments stressed the human achievement and advancement of space exploration. Very idealistic. 
Secretary of State John uh, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles saw Sputnik as Soviet propaganda that would chip away at U.S. prestige. A counterlaunch couldn't be done immediately, but after the launch of Sputnik 2, you, know, you mentioned Sputnik 2, which Sputnik 2 had Laika the dog. Yes. Here's a fun fact. You know, so that was you know, so Laika the dog was the first animal to be launched into space. Did you know what Laika's U.S. nickname was? Oh, I, uh, I used to. I think know I know. This. Hang on. I think I used to know that. Or I think I know this. Um, oh, damn it. Um, it was Kaputnik, wasn't it? No, 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 no. That was nope, a, that no, was a fa- no, that was a failed Kaputnik. satellite. It was Kaputnik. No, 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 no. Kapuchnik. Nope. Damn it. Snoopy. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great, but no. Clifford. No, Clifford. No, I actually used to know. <laughs> of course, of course, Michael wants to launch Clifford into space. I do, but yeah, that's so beside the be point. The I'm trying you to realize if you launched Clifford into space, you would come back as a space monster, right? This is how kaiju work. He wants to He's make not really Clifford a kaiju. the first kaiju on the moon. There, you, no, there's been several kaiju on the moon already. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, Mutnik. Damn Mutnik. it! <laughs> That's what it was. I knew it was something with with uh, Sputnik. I I because I, I have heard yep. it. I I've I've I knew it. I just couldn't remember it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And unfortunately, Laika didn't survive. No. no. Well, she, she either, was never meant. She to either survive. just yeah she yeah she wasn't intended to. She either died from the elements while in orbit, or she died in reentry. So no one really knows. But so you had that, and then you had the "quote unquote" fiery failure of Vanguard One, the U.S. satellite. Mm-hmm. That poor puppy. Yeah. So Dulls used Sputnik to frame the Soviets as "quote the chief war makers in the world." End quote. Despite them being used, despite the satellites being used for scientific purposes. So, you know, President Kennedy trying to be cordial about it. Not everybody in the administration was necessarily being cordial about it. But after the initial panic and... hmm? Do you remember uh, Kennedy's speech about the moon? (laughs) We are going to go to the moon. (laughs) Yep. We are going to go to the moon. And we're going to build a a great civilization on the moon. (laughs) We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. They are hard. Because, yes. <laughs> because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our in- energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are mm. unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win, and the others too. There is mm. no strife, no prejudice. No national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind, and its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may many never come again. Cooperation may never come again. Yeah. I think... No, I don't think... You're giving Jimmy goosebumps there. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was the this was the yes. part that was this was the part that um really uh they that it's is 
is one of the most famous things, but because he says uh, uh, he explains the cost of it all. To be sure, all this cost, mm-hmm. all this costs us all a good deal of money. And then he explains the budget. Uh, mm-hmm. But he says mm-hmm. that, however, I think we're going to do it. And I think we must pay what needs to be paid. I don't think we ought to waste any money, but I think we ought to do the job. And this will be done in the decade of the 60s. It may be done mm-hmm. while some of you are still here at school at this college and university, because this was at uh, Rice uh, University. Mm-hmm. So, yeah says, I am delighted that this university is playing a part in putting a man on the moon and as part of a great national effort of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how there was cordiality, but there was still a lot of competition. So I, it's almost like they were they would be publicly cordial, but they were kind of secretly like, let's see if we can beat them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, within that same speech, he you know he explains. He says, within these last nineteen months, at least forty-five satellites have circled the Earth. Some forty of them were made in the United States of America, and they were far more sophisticated and and supplied far yep. more knowledge to the people of the world than those of the Soviet Union. Yep, <laughs> we're better, guys. We're better. Yep. <laughs> so, but yeah, Kennedy and Khrushchev, they would ex- they would exchange congratulatory telegrams about space exploration whenever one of them you know one of their respective countries did something this was especially true when yuri gagarin became the first man to orbit earth in april 1961 that was another one of the first that the soviets got first man in space yuri gagarin Mm -hmm. and it was used as an avenue for peace and dialogue and then the bay of pigs happened so (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's what's interesting, you were talking about how they they were kind of cordial with each other when Yuri Gagarin, um, when he came back to Earth, he was treated like a hero, not uh, not just in Soviet Russia, but he made appearances in the United States and went on tour in the United States. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he was he was uh, considered a very important figure, even to Mm -hmm. to Americans at that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And Korolev, he was he started working on rocket designs that would become the Soviet Vostok and uh, to do a, a fully automated to make a fully automated capsule that could hold a human passenger in a spacesuit. May 1960, they tested a prototype of this using. Oh, and it orbited Earth 64 times before failing reentry. And then they tested it again with two more dogs. Mm-hmm. You know the names of these dogs. Oh, righty and lefty. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't remember them. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I hope I'm saying this right. It's Beka and Strika, or it's Strika. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, B E I K A. Yeah, Beka and Strika. Yeah, Beka and Strika. So they were launched from into low Earth orbit, and they actually came back, and they were the first living creatures to be launched into space and be recovered. Yeah, again, another uh, first. They were aboard the Korob Sputnik 2, mm-hmm. or what was eventually called Sputnik 5. Uh, it was mm. the fifth actual Sputnik to go out mm-hmm. into space. And uh, yeah, Belka or Belka uh, is mm-hmm. translated as squirrel. And Strelka <laughs> or Strelka uh, is little arrow. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's so cute. Stroka the little arrow. Yes. 
and the baker the squirrel. And baker the squirrel. Yes. Baker the squirrel. Baker the squirrel. <laughs> and stroke your little arrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that, even though, <laughs> and they are stuffed. Uh, there by when they died, they were oh. stuffed and put, and they are in a museum. You can actually see them. Oh, they're the ta- they were taxidermied. Oh, yeah, that's really uh, cool. But what's interesting is, even though, even though they were the two most famous animals, and they were the ones that had names, uh, they were not the only animals on Sputnik Five. You had a oh, gray really? rabbit. You had a gray rabbit, forty-two mice, two rats. <laughs> A bunch of flies and several plants and fungi, and all of the passengers survived. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> plants and fungi. I'm sure our friend Dr. Dorif is all about that. All those Russian fungi. Yes, Machen. They are You're wonderful. not him. <laughs> but they were he does, the I don't know if I don't know if he takes kindly to to imposters or not. You might want to watch yourself, Michael. I'm not scared of the good doctor because I am the good doctor. <laughs> I, I've met the good doctor. You are most certainly not him. Anyway, so we we, we mentioned Gagarin. Something. You well, hold on. You want me to give you another fun fact about Belka oh. and Straka? Oh, tell us. So uh, they had descendants that were still alive as of 2015. Really? Yeah. Interesting. And that actually the, is interesting. They uh, the the descendants actually attended uh, the Svezda. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the Svezda Museum in uh, Tomolino, which is outside of Moscow. Uh, where the animals were stuffed and, and on display, and they took a picture there with them. So, oh. yeah, it is kind of interesting. Hmm. So, uh, Khrushchev, in response to something that Kennedy said about Gagarin, you know, that momentous Ooh. occasion in space history. Oh, what's that? What do you got? Okay, sorry, sorry. Uh, Stryka, no, I just I'm I'm sitting here reading all this stuff on Wikipedia while you're talking. Um, <laughs> so, Stryka. After uh, she returned from from space, she went on to live and have six puppies with a male dog uh, who was named Pushok, uh, and who and Pushok also was uh, involved in a lot of the ground based uh, space experiments. So he he never went into space, hmm. but he was also involved in the space program. And one of the puppies, one of the six puppies of Belka, no Stryka, that went the the dog that went to space. One of those puppies was given to President John F. Kennedy by oh, Khrushchev in 1961. Really? So oh. John F. Kennedy owned a puppy from a space dog. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a Russian space dog. Russian yeah, space. The dog. puppy's that name, name was of the, That is name of new band. That is name of new band. <laughs> Russian space dogs. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, the, the dog's of, name was Pushinka, and the puppies were uh, nicknamed Pupkins by JFK. <laughs> Pupkins. <laughs> that is one of the best things I have ever heard. <laughs> Pupkins. I just, that, is, that is the cute, that's, you know, I mean, there's, we know how, well, I know how, uh, uh, Yuri Gergeran's story ends, and we know how JFK's yeah. story ends. So yeah. having a nice 
fluffy puppy named Pushinka, who was born from a space dog given to JFK. Uh, that was that was nice. In the middle of a Cold War, the president of the Soviet Union gave a space dog to the president of the United States. That's just nice. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it just goes to show you. Yeah, they were competing with each other. Probably didn't really like each other all that much as countries, but yeah, they could be nice. You know, the, like I said, it the space race was also an opportunity for dialogue and for peace. Yeah, it, it kind of was a gloat. It's like, hey, this this dog, you know, th- this dog was uh, <laughs> was the son of the bitch that went into space. Uh, <laughs> 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 that's that's funny <laughs> that has the jimmy a seal of approval so <laughs> all right all right mark Chan, uh, yes jimmy of course you had a space dog when you were a kid <laughs> whatever <laughs> but speaking of kennedy gagarin and khrushchev when kennedy is you know made some comments about Gagarin. Khrushchev was quoted as saying, "Quote: I express the hope that the Soviet Union and the United States may work together on the matter of mastering the universe. Considering the mastering of the universe is part of the great task of creating peace without armaments of war." End quote. <laughs> mastering the universe. That seems like a very Russian thing to say. <laughs> I have the power. (laughs) Obvious joke is obvious. Yeah, the obvious joke is obvious. (laughs) I am skeletal. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So in the the exchanges like these were pretty common, you know, and then, you know, there was the, you know, the space challenge speech that we talked about, but here's some more Mm -hmm. fun little first that Roscosmos had throughout most of the sixties. They also sent the first woman into space. You know her name, Travis. Oh, uh, no, that one I do not. Yeah. Valentina Tereshkova. Tereshkova. Was she pretty? Oh, Tereshkova. I don't know. I, I didn't see any My, pictures Michael, of her. Michael, <laughs> don't objectify this woman who was a a scientist who were involved in sciences and did an amazing thing. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, oh, that yeah, was in Valentina 1960. Yeah, Tereshkova. Yes, I 1963. I, mm-hmm. Yes. And the Russians also had the first spacewalk performed by Alexei Leonov in 1965. Yep. Just racking up all of those firsts. So I mentioned the IGY, that was the International Geophysical Year. Yeah. That was start, uh, an organization started in 1957 that had 60,000 scientists from 66 countries, including the U.S. and the Soviet Union, dedicated to studying space. You know, Jimmy's favorite thing. And the U.N., the, interestingly, the Soviet Union did propose to the U.N. to make a U.N. space program, but the general uh, to the General Assembly and, predictably, the Americans shut it down. However, they did make the... Committee for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space in 1959 to help the IGY. And it led to the passage of UN Resolution 1721, which basically said outer space was subject to international law and no country could lay claim to it. So basically all of outer space is international waters. Yep. So 
Tensions started mounting again in 1963 when reconnaissance satellites were, uh, were to be launched. The Soviets saw this as espionage, while the U.S., through Senator Albert Gore Sr., that should be a familiar name to, <laughs> to mm -hmm. all of us Americans. <laughs> Did they? Ha was he Russian Chad? <laughs> uh, so... Senator Gore Sr. argued that, quote, military activities in space cannot be divorced from the question of military activities on Earth. So, yeah, tensions started mounting again. And then the Soviets started running into some setbacks. Their first big one was in 1967 when the cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov uh, died when his, when, uh, his parachute Oh, when the parachute that was supposed to help his space capsule, the Soyuz 1, land gently, it failed to open. But he did become one of the, another unfortunate, he became an unfortunate first for the Soviets, the first in-flight death of a man in space. Yep. <laughs> Huge embarrassment for the Russian space program. What'd they do with his body? I don't know. Oh. I don't know. The superpowers signed the, quote, first memorandum of understanding. A plan of cooperation for weather satellites, 1963, with the help of NASA rep Hugh Dryden. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah, he's one of I, your heroes, Jimmy. Sounds like a to me. <laughs> Jet is being, uh, is continually employed. Yes, Jet. Yes, Jet. I'm sure you're having a good time today. I, I, uh, this is why Jimmy brought yeah, he, you here. Hugh Dryden, he was, um, he was very, very important. Uh, mm -hmm. When it came to the the um, moon missions, mm -hmm. wasn't he? Mm -hmm. I, 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 yeah, yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure. And yeah, and then the the weather satellite. Yeah, oh no, the uh, the memorandum came to fruition January 1964 when the U.S. launched some weather weather satellites. It was called uh, oh a weather satellite, I should say, the Echo Two. And this memorandum paved the way. Did you guys know that there were actually joint U.S. Soviet space missions in the early 70s? I actually did that. I actually did know yeah, that. Yeah, Apollo Soyuz. Mm -hmm. Yep. And a later Soyuz. this Soyuz, yes, in 1972, Soyuz. and this later Soyuz. paved the way for mm -hmm, and that later paved the way for the International Space Station. Yes. Well. Mm -hmm. Oh, and we had kind of been hinting at this thanks to you Travis, but there were actually eight more Sputniks. Yeah. Eight more. Yep. Uh, one of the big setbacks that the that the Soviet Union had, and really what kind of allowed the United States to get a foothold in its in its uh, space race, or, or you know, in the space race, uh, was the death of the the man you were talking about earlier, Sergei Korolev. Korolev. Mm -hmm. I was just about to get to that. Yeah, he was hoping to send cosmonauts to the moon in October 1967 to mark the 50th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution, but he died of colon cancer complications in January 1966. And none yeah. of his successors, I guess, were nearly as good as he was. So the moon program for the Soviets just fell apart. Yeah. Well, not completely. They did eventually make it to the moon, but it was, yes. it was the huge setback that allowed the United States to get ahead mm -hmm. uh if mm -hmm. you if you believe that the united states ever got ahead and ever went to the moon to begin with oh you're angering jimmy 
<laughs> doesn't like moon landing conspiracy theories, let me tell you. The moon landing didn't happen. We all know that. <laughs> mm, you're triggering him hard. Triggering him hard. Anyway, but yeah, uh, the Soviets had the N1 rockets. They were supposed to get them to the moon, and those were failing. They abandoned their mm -hmm. efforts on it. Apollo 11 touched down on the moon and on the moon's sea of tranquility, July 20th, yep. 1969. Neil Armstrong and you know, and all that were all very familiar with that. So, okay, Real or okay, not, let me I ask suppose. You, let me test the great Marchand's oh, mind no. and knowledge. Uh -oh. Do oh, you no, remember no. the three men who were on the Apollo 11 mission? Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and the third guy always eludes me. He was the pilot. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He was the one that stayed on. Uh, on board so uh mm -hmm. is i had it in my head and then as soon as you started talking i lost it um michael collins yeah <laughs> oh there you go fellow michael, michael collins <laughs> yeah i always uh try to remember well I, I always try to remember all three of them but i always try to remember michael collins names because it is a frequent jeopardy question because it's the one person mm. that a lot of people cannot remember uh, even though mm -hmm. he took all the risks to get there, just like everybody else, but because yep. he didn't actually walk on the moon, he's not as remembered mm -hmm. as as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, well, and tragically, I mean, there were several more manned missions to the moon, but almost nobody can name the astronauts on those later missions. There were, so altogether, there were 17 Apollo missions. Mm-hmm. And uh, Apollo 17 was the last two. I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure I'm going by memory. So let me double check and make sure that that that, that I'm correct in that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. While you look that up, I will also mention that even though the Soviets yes. didn't get to the What's moon. The final, oh, What's the, the final, final one? one? Okay. Apollo 17. All right. I thought so, but I right. just wanted to make sure. That's fine. That's fine. But yeah. So even though the Soviets didn't get to the moon first, they did have another first after that. They had the first space station, the Salyut 1, which was launched mm -hmm. in... Well, which was launched on, I should say, April 19th, 1971. And obviously the Mir space station in the 1980s and the 1990s. And Russian cosmonaut Valery Polyakov set a record uh, on Mir for the longest consecutive stay in space. But was she pretty? <laughs> I, I think that was a guy, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure oh. that it was. Damn it. Was, I mean, he, was pretty? he pretty? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I can. I'll double check just to make sure. I'm. I'm going to double check live on the air right now. <laughs> yes, it was a man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Val Valerie is a male name in uh, in uh, Russian. <laughs> but yes, he stayed in space from January 1994 to March 1995. 14 months, 438 days. You unofficially beat that. Sure, sure. Might want to call Guinness and tell him. Not that Guinness. Hey, I'm something Jimmy and I can agree on. <laughs> Actually, it <laughs> is the same Guinness. It is? Guinness Book of World Records is owned by the Guinness Beer Company. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, I knew that. Yeah, it's the same thing. Speaking of. As a marketing way of, of selling uh, their and, and drawing more attention to their beers. Because they did not. Well, Jimmy, I stand corrected. 
speaking of, when can we wrap this up? Because Jimmy and I are supposed to meet a couple of ladies at the bar later. Oh, really? Really? Wait, this is Monster Island. The there's only so many ladies on this island. Oh, there's plenty Look, of ladies on this island. What are you talking about? Are One they of them small is my pseudo and do they sing? Occasionally. Occasionally, but the lady that I'm supposed to be meeting later actually has wings. So I wait. What? Moving on. It's okay. Oh, another update from Mr. Winter's stream. Okay, what's going on this time? <laughs> well, as I live and breathe, looky here. A trail of sulfur. Follow it, 57. The Norse giant from space is about to learn it's never good to be a messy eater. <laughs> oh, Ymir. You say that around most people these days, and they think of Attack on Titan. Am I the only one sick of the final season, taking three years to complete? I finally agreed with March Lind on something when he said he'd rather read the manga instead of waiting for the anime to finally finish. Speaking of which, Marchland should cover its film duology on his show. I hear that guy G-Man wants to discuss them. What's the G stand for, anyway? Gatekeeper? Probably. Gotta say, I must admire his confidence. Anyway, back to the Sulphur Trail. We... Really? I didn't realize that we had piles of sulfur for... That for him to sounds eat. weirdly dangerous. Yes, well, to be honest with you. It's, it's what he usually eats. I mean, that is his native food so. right but why would you have piles of sulfur just kind of laying around on the island i feel like it. at least one of the kaiju poops sulfur probably you know probably it's a wonderful little ecosystem around here i mean i found out that uh, thanks to Alyssa goji geek that hetera uh, disposes all the sewage here on the island they just feed it to him yeah. i think the, i think gauss guano I think Gauss Guano is made of sulfur. That would make sense. Mm-hmm. That would make sense. And you were here for Gamera versus Gauss, so you would know. This is true. Yeah. This is true. You would yeah. know. I was wondering what that, because it was like a smell of like rotten eggs. and just, Yeah. 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 I'm, I bet I bet sometimes they feed the Emir rotten eggs just to confuse him because he thinks it smells like sulfur. That just sounds, that's cruel. Yeah, you, that is cruel. That. Yeah. Be nice to the Emir, you jerks. All right, before we move on, I, I know, Travis, you had a, a little fact about Mr. Gagarin that you wanted to share with us. Well, yeah, yeah, Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, uh, he had an untimely end, uh, flying a plane, of all things. He, uh, his mm-hmm. plane crashed. Uh, he, well, actually, he basically disappeared. Like, they've never been able to find the plane or his body. But he was he disintegrated. He just he disappeared uh, in his plane. But yeah, uh, so no. there's there is a, a belief that he crashed or that his plane had some kind of malfunction and that he crashed. And for the longest time, the Soviet Union did not admit how he died. It was a mystery uh, because they did not want the United States or well any other country to know that the hero of the Soviet Union had died in such an untimely and kind of tragic way. It would not surprise me if he was not here on the island today. Ooh. Oh, of course you think it was aliens, Jimmy. Ooh. You know what? I'm kind of with Jimmy on that one. I think it probably was aliens. Everything's aliens for Jimmy. 
Well, you know, there's the there's the Valentich uh, plane crash that Valentich uh, was an Australian guy who was flying from Melbourne to or Melbourne to Hobart in Tasmania and he disappeared and he the last radio signal that he gave was describing an an object flying around him and flying at at Mm. incredible speeds. So Hmm. very possible. And now for some more feedback, but this time from listeners. In this case, it is my friend Neil Reby, who has been a guest host on the show, slated to come back at some point. Dude literally told me I could just bring him on for any Godzilla movie and he'd just come on and talk about it. Oh, I'm glad that somebody can just request a movie and then just be able to show up. Okay, <laughs> fine. You're coming back several times, good sir. Good sir. Hmm. I said anyway, good day, sir. So, yes. So, <laughs> Neil was writing in response to my episode with John LeMay on them, <laughs> episode 60. <laughs> So he sent me a little bit of a message thread on Facebook about it. He said, that was funny to find out that Gordon Douglas, who was the director of this movie, directed Zombies on Broadway. I loved that movie when I was a kid. I saw it on PBS when I stayed overnight at my grandparents. I didn't know Zombies on Broadway was ever on TV, but apparently it was. What was especially cool was that PBS aired it at 10.30 Friday night and then again Saturday afternoon. I was able to watch it twice in a short span of time. This was before the VHS last beta days. Jeez, does anyone remember beta? (laughs) Most of us barely remember VHS. So watching a monster movie twice in the same weekend was unheard of. Someone's going to pay me to cover that on Patreon, aren't they? Zombies. Zombies on Broadway. Zombies on Broadway. Yes. <laughs> My, and Travis is immediately thinking, where is it? <laughs> yeah. Zombies on Broadway. <laughs> I'm going to have that on Kaiju Weekly. And then he goes on to say, and of course I loved them when I was a kid. Regarding the sugar, because I brought up the whole thing about how the giant ants still like normal size sugar. The giant ants never got away with any of it because the sugar was shown spilled on the floor at the various locations. The only time they were able to run off with the sugar was when they took it from the railroad boxcars. In that instance, the sugar was probably stored in containers they could carry. My interpretation of what was going on in the earlier scenes was that the smell of the sugar attracted them and they tore up the shop and the mobile home trying to get their jaws on it. There you go. He decided to Stan Lee no prize this. And you know what? I'll send you one of those no prizes, Neil. You earned it. Did you find zombies on Broadway? Yes, I did. Yes. Bella Lugosi is in that film. (laughs) Bella Lugosi is in it? Yeah. You can buy the DVD for $21 used. (laughs) Well, well, someone's going to sponsor it, aren't they? Hmm. Don't I I have one in the coffers that i'm that i've still got to use yeah but you wanted to do something else that was very very nostalgic oh yeah 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 dinosaurs okay yeah we'll talk later anyway (laughs) and now gentlemen if you can muster the energy 
We can muster as much energy as you want us to, good sir. Are you German or Russian in that one? I, well, I'm not going to tell you because I'm a little bit Irish a little bit. <laughs> I'm also a little bit Irish. I can be a little bit Scot. I can be a little bit Scottish. Oh, wait, uh, that, your, your Scottish accent sounds weirdly familiar. I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. Okay. Um, was, I'm having flashbacks. And they involve Yeti. <laughs> well, I have no idea what you're talking. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, what was that? What? Oh, no, nothing. Nothing. Many nothing. of my flashbacks what? also involve Yetis. Many. Of yeah, my because flashbacks... your because your personal Jaeger is called Nipple Dragon. <laughs> nipple no Dragon. Way. That has nothing to do with Yetis. That's just a Nipple Dragon. Sure. We... Oh, you've seen it. It's a beautiful. Pornographic Mechanicong. That's how you would describe it. It's beautiful, isn't it, Jimmy? All right. I, I thought so, too. Look, I don't okay. need to hear anymore. The location where the missile shoots from was Michael's idea, not mine. <laughs> and it's unfortunately, it only had room for one single missile. Um, and we but it's a pretty weird. All right, I'm going to cut you off. I'm cutting you off right there so we can move on to the all-important Patreon shout-outs. Travis Alexander. It's Morphin Time, Michael. From Redeemed Otaku, Eli Harris, Chris Cook. It's probably that good old-fashioned boy everyone loves out there. His name is Damon Noy. The Selkaz! Eric Anderson. Hello, Mr. Anderson. Hello, Mr. Ted Williams. <laughs> Tofu! And again, as I scrape the blood out of my ears, I remind all of you that you can get shout outs like this and other perks by joining MIFV Max on Patreon starting at just $3 a month. Also, go buy our merch on TeePublic. I need to mention that a little more often. <laughs> all right. And now to let everybody know what is coming up in the next few episodes of the Film Vault, we're getting back to Godzilla Redux, redo, however you want to say it, with our friend Danny, Danny boy, Damana, for Mothra vs. Godzilla from 1964, considered by many to be one of the best of the sequels to the original Godzilla and one of the high points of the Showa era. And then after that... Amerikaiju continues and gets a little wacky because the next movie we talk about in this series is as big as a battleship. Oh no. <laughs> Wait, is there, hang on. Is there going to be a drinking game involved with this? I already know how many times that line is used. 12. That is blackout level, sir. Yep. I think it's 12. It's 11 or 12. I'll double check when, wow. we, when we watch. But yes, the giant claw. <laughs> we had to. We had to. 
How can you talk oh. about American kaiju movies and not talk about the giant claw? I mean, it did just get a nifty new 4K release that I'm assuming is in your film vault. Yes. Yes. Thanks to Arrow Video. Yes, it is in the film vault. <laughs> but the giant claw is not on the island. He's on the beta site. He's considered too weird to be on the main island. You let you let the Ymir on this island. You did not let the giant claw. I don't make you the de- not- I don't make the decisions. You didn't. You didn't let Crazy Bernie the bird on this island. I, I, I don't make the decisions. You have an Take island it up with the where board. you just you put the things that you deem as too weird. Like that's not fair. Like that's well, like high school all over again. Well, right. Well, uh, again, I don't make the decisions. And it's in like the, the in defense of the decision makers, they made far more questionable calls than that because Shin Godzilla is on racist. the. Well, it's like the it's like the mathlete table in high school. Yeah, I, it's I, like we're all the mathlete set. Okay, but I'm just saying they also put well, Shin Godzilla on the island because I think Shin Godzilla is too weird. But Nathan, that doesn't make any sense. I, I, again, I don't make the decisions. Okay, I don't make the decisions. I'm, I just work Travis, here. I Travis, we're we're gonna have to stop by Mr. Winter's office on the way home, on the way back. He anyway. didn't make the decision either. This was a board decision before he was here. Well, I need to talk to Mr. Winter anyway, sir. Yes. And anyway, joining me for the movie as big as a battleship will be Damon Noise. I was gonna say Big Mama. <laughs> no, big Mama Damon. Big Mama Damon. Well, it'd be good. It'll be mighty fine to see old Big Mama Damon back on the podcast. Big Mama Damon. Big Mama David. <laughs> All right. Smoke, All right. Smokes 12 packs a day. Big Mama David. <laughs> All right. And now it's come. we come to quite possibly the most important segment of the podcast, shameless self-promotion. So I'm going to beat both of you to this and say... All y'all need to listen to Henshin Men and to the Power Trip, the spinoff podcast. You really should. And now I'll let you gentlemen talk about that a little bit more if you so choose. Travis, go ahead. My co-hosts in common. Yeah. Travis, go ahead and start us off, please. Thank you. We, uh, me and Nathan host the... Henshin Men podcast. I forgot what podcast we were we host together. I almost said you weekly. I am tired. Uh, we host the Henshin Men podcast where we go into Japanese superheroes transforming superheroes and their high flying and high kicking adventures episode by episode. Uh, we've been on a what's turning out to be an almost two year journey of. <laughs> Uh, it hasn't even been a year the original yet. Common Rider. <laughs> eh, it's close. It's close to a year now. It's uh, feeling but like yes, it, yeah. Uh, we we uh we've been exploring the original Common Rider series from the seventies, and we do plan on getting to other uh, Tokusatsu and Japanese uh, superhero shows, transforming superhero shows. Uh, once we finish with Common Rider, and Michael and I uh, both host the Kaiju Weekly podcast, which is a podcast all about exploring the wide world of giant monster movies in a fun setting where we take the movies seriously, but we don't. Don't take ourselves too seriously. Obviously, if you have heard any of the things that got edited out of this episode, we do not take ourselves out that seriously. <laughs> oh, everyone here on the island heard it all. 
We covered Star Crash, and you're over here saying that we take the movies seriously. Come on, man. That movie is a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh, yes, we talk a little bit too much about Yeti nipples, and uh, I am extremely enthusiastic about Night of the Lepus. So, and oh Baragon. yes, our first episode together. <laughs> yeah, uh, and we also created and are involved in uh, the production of Kaiju Ramen Magazine uh, mm-hmm. as part of Kaiju Ramen Media, uh, LLC. Uh, Kaiju Ramen Magazine is a, is a quarterly magazine that celebrates all the giant monster media and the fans who love it and express their love in creative ways. And so it's just a nice magazine where you can go and find all kinds of great Kaiju and giant monster goodness. Mm-hmm. And my name is Michael. I am the host, along with my uh, good friend, Mr. Marchand, here of The Power Trip, a journey through the Power Rangers franchise, where we uh, go season by season through Power Rangers, and we analyze those uh, more in depth than probably what you would be uh, used to uh, from other Power Rangers podcasts. Three uh, and a half hours. Three and a half hours Make on Time, time Force. For time Force. Yeah. Uh, So uh, we talk about the Ranger teams, the theme song, the Zords, and we also talk about the thematics uh, in each season. And we try to uh, take more of an academic approach to Power Rangers, to the Power Rangers franchise, because uh, as Nathan and I have explained on that podcast, uh, there is kind of this upswell of there's this trend of, you know, viewing certain pop culture uh pop culture shows as modern day mythology. And that's how we approach power Rangers. And you can find out more about that podcast and all the other wonderful podcasts that we do, uh, and all the other wonderful things that we do at kaijuramamedia.com slash podcasts. Yes. So is Kaiju ramen as big as a battleship? Bigger. Only when it eats too much. Bigger. <laughs> It is bigger. Kaiju Ramen is huge and taking over the world slowly. Of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. (laughs) Good one, Jimmy. Good one. Did you know M. Bison recorded that live here in the studio for us? I don't believe that. Of course. (laughs) Yes, but for him, it was only Tuesday. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it was only Tuesday. What was that, Jimmy? Are you kidding me? Guys, we have to see this. Apparently, Mr. Oh. Winter found the Emir on his stream. Oh. Oh, there you are, not cracking. Oh, stop your whining. Don't hit my side of Be a good boy and let Dr. Winter give you a shot. I promise it'll only hurt you. Oh, missed me. Stabby, stabby. Oh, you brought this on yourself, big fella. Enjoy your nap. And there you have it. What does Marchland call his audience? Ah, kaiju lovers. The most elusive creature on Monster Island, bagged and tagged. I don't know why Nichols says monster hunting is so damn hard. I'll just have 57 take the Ymir to the Solstice Lab for some uh, examinations. 
and then have him on display in a titanium cage can't be too careful in Sarazawa Memorial Park. Bring the kids and have them feed a monster. It'll be great. Ta-ta, much love. Well, that just doesn't seem nice. No, it doesn't. Apparently, it seems rather exploitative to me. Yeah, apparently nobody learned anything. Come on. they As we've already established, all you have to do is be nice to the emir, and he doesn't hurt anybody. What? Right. He didn't even hurt a lamb in this movie. Mm-hmm. Not, no, not at all. But I kind of wish he would have hit, wait, I kind of wish he would have hurt Mr. Winter. Because Mr. War- Mr. Winter looks like a smarmy little SOB. Uh, I'm not going to argue with you too much there, but that's probably why he used one of those oversized robot flies, what I wouldn't do for an oversized fly swatter right now. Mm. What I wouldn't do for an oversized margarita right now. I think we could all use one Mr. of those. Winter so Winter needs to have a big fall. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just you too know, tired to even with the jokes. I'm just like, <laughs> you know what? You know what? In light of that joke and recent events, I think I'll join you for those drinks. Sure, Jimmy, you can come along too. All right, more the more the merrier. Hey, uh, Nathan, can your sister come? My pseudo sister? Your pseudo sister, yes. Why? Because she's pretty too. Of course she is. Look who her brother is. No, 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 no. She doesn't look pseudo brother. Yes, she doesn't look anything like you. Even I didn't get it right. Got anything else? No, that's it. Okay. Hey, Jet, you want to come too? You can drink. How does that work? He just, you know, he just gets a little bit punch, punch, punch drunk. (laughs) Okay. With that, Jimmy, cue the credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you want to join the discussion and be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault. And on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and TikTok. Follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy and our many other colorful characters using the links in the show notes. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Opened Way, Battle with the Colossus, by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! <laughs>